laying aside every weight, right? So we're starting a, a new uh, book today. Um, if you want to open up to Jude chapter 1. Actually, not, there are no chapters in Jude. Let me, let me back that up. Jude verse 1. Uh, if you're looking for Jude, it, it's going to be found uh, right before the last book of the Bible. So it's going to be in between 3 John and Revelation. Uh, if you want to look in the index, that's okay. Uh, no one should give you a hard time about that. Uh, if you don't have your Bible or you don't have a Bible, there should be a hard black, uh, hard back black Bible near you. Uh, you can go ahead and grab that and open up in your bulletin. You should have the page number for that. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, we invite you to take that Bible with you and make it your copy of God's Word um, so that you can can have it and study it and get to know it. And so as you're turning to Jude verse 1, I, I want to pray for us. And, and so when you get there, go ahead and bow your heads with me. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jude and his letter to us. Father, we know that there was a church that received this a long time ago, uh, but we know that your word still speaks to your people. And so, God, I pray that our hearts would be humble, that we would place ourselves under Jude's teaching over the next few weeks. God, that you would use the Holy Spirit to guide us um, into your truth. And that you would give us a heart for you, for the good news of Jesus, for the the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that you would give us a heart for the church to protect one another from false teaching. Father, help us to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to us by you. Father, help us to trust in your word, to trust in the truth of it. And God, help us to place ourselves under you and your teaching. Father, we ask that you would speak for your servants are listening. We ask that you would open our hearts to behold the wondrous things in your law. For your glory, for the good of First Baptist Church of Hatch, New Mexico, for the good of the Hatch Valley. And Father, for our joy. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the American poet, Jimmy Buffett, said one time that he is a dreamer of dreams and a traveling man. I've chalked up many a mile. Read dozens of books about heroes and crooks. And I've learned much from both of their styles. I think Jimmy sums up perfectly uh, what all people experience, Christian and non-Christian. There are two truths in the song, Son of a Son of a Sailor, from Jimmy Buffett. The first one is, we want to be good. There is a desire within the hearts of people to be good, right? Right? We read these books about heroes and crooks, and we want to be like the heroes. We want to emulate our lives after them. We want to be seen as noble and good. But the second thing is that our hearts love sin. We may want to be like the heroes, but we realize we're more like the crooks. 
our hearts are bent towards selfishness, which leads us to break God's law. So there's this overall reality within the song, but also within the letter from Jude to an unnamed church. And that overall reality is that we need Jesus to save us and change us. We need Jesus to save us from our sins and save us from our deserved punishment in hell. But we also need Jesus to change us, to make us different, to make us more like him. So this morning, we're going to begin our, our quick dive into Jude. It's, it's not a huge letter. Uh, it's not going to take us that long, but it's going to be a good transition from the prophets that we've been in this summer into uh, what the Lord is, is leading us towards in the fall. And so I'm ready to jump in. How about you? So let's look at verse, the first two verses in Jude's letter. So Jude verse 1 says this, Jude a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So this letter from Jude begins like every other letter in the New Testament and every letter that was written during what we would call the Greco-Roman times. The, the, the Greco-Roman times is pretty much the time that Rome was the dominant political power, but Greece was the dominant cultural power. And so the ruling came from the city of Rome, but the cultural influence, the philosophers and the artists, they came from Athens, from Greece. And so your typical letter during this time would have three things at the beginning. It would, it would tell us who the sender is, it would tell us who the recipient is, and it would give a short greeting. If you go to Acts chapter 23, verse 26, don't turn there, but if you want to write that down so you can look at it later, we see a typical letter from, a, from one Roman official to the other. And so here's what Acts 23, 26 tells us. It's, it's Luke copying the letter from Claudius to Phoenix. And it says this, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor of Felix, greetings. Now, that's more condensed, but you can see the flow, just like Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Do you see, do you see how the flow goes together? And so we want to, to, to realize that there is a difference between Jude's letter and Claudius's letter. And that is that Jude, like Paul and Peter and John in their letters, like all New Testament letters, they are infused with theology. Jude and Paul and Peter and John, from the beginning of their letters, want the people of God to know about God. When you hear the word theology, that may seem scary, right? I had to take 
multiple classes on theology. Theology simply means the study of God. And can I tell you something? Everyone is a theologian. It's just some are good and some aren't, right? (laughs) We all have thoughts about God. And so that means we have all entered into the study of God. Some of us have grounded ourselves in the word of God, so it is correct. Others of us have simply come up with opinions and ideas about God with no basis in the truth of God's word. And so don't be scared of the idea of theology, the idea of studying God. That's what we gather to do every Sunday morning, to study him, to fall in love with him, and then to be sent out by him, right? So this letter tells us who the sender is. His name is Jude. Now, Jude is a English form of the Hebrew name Judah and the Greek name, you ready for this? Judas. In fact, if you go to the Greek, the letter doesn't begin Jude, it begins Judas because he's writing it in Greek, right? So this man shares the name of Jacob's son, Judah, who would become a tribe. And it's from that tribe that the kings of Israel would come, David, right? And it's also from that tribe that the lion of Judah would come, the Messiah, the one that the people of Israel were longing for. And we know his name. His name is Jesus. But Jude also shares his name with the greatest traitor in history, The one who for a few pieces of silver sold our Lord and Savior to the religious officials to be crucified. But note that Jude doesn't, he doesn't revel in his name, nor is he ashamed of his name. And that's because he knows that it is only by the grace of God that he is different. This Jude could have been the one to sell Jesus to the authorities. In fact, as we're going to discover here in a second, this Jude wanted nothing to do with Jesus during his earthly ministry. But before we get there, we have to deal with this. Jude calls himself a servant of Christ. He uses the Greek word doulos, which is actually... More, more along the ideas of a slave rather than diakonos, which we get our word deacon from. The idea of being a servant minister. He uses the word doulos, really letting us know that he is a slave to Jesus. And of course, calling himself a servant or a slave of Jesus puts himself in a position of honor because of who he serves. But the reality is, is that he is subject to someone. He does not consider himself a free man. He calls himself a servant belonging to Jesus Christ. He also calls himself the brother of James. We have two options in the early church. The first option is James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, the one who was a disciple that followed Jesus for three years. I would say that this is not the right James. Reason being, James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, was martyred in AD 41. 
about eight to ten years after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's the one martyr that is mentioned in the book of Acts. I don't think he is the James being spoken of here because one, John isn't mentioned as well and John still would have been living. And two, this letter was written around A.D. 50. So it wouldn't make sense for him to call himself the brother of James as if James is still living nine years after he's died. I think the better option is James, the one who wrote our letter from James. This is James who was the brother of Jesus. He's the brother of Jesus, of course, through adoption because Joseph was James's father and he wasn't Jesus's father. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But he is Jesus's brother nonetheless. This, of course, means that if Jude is the brother of James, he's also the brother of Jesus. And we know that Jesus had a brother named Judas because in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus's brothers are mentioned. The ones who are opposed to him and trying to get him to stop acting like a crazy guy. In Mark 6, 3, Jesus's brothers are named James, Joseph, Simon, and guess who? Judas. I believe that this is the Jude that writes this letter. He calls himself the brother of James, but what does he call himself in terms of relationship with Jesus, the one who he did not want anything to do with during his earthly ministry? He now calls himself a servant of him. This is the grace of God at work. So this is Jude, the one who sends the letter, the servant and brother of Jesus and the brother of James. So who is the recipient? Who is receiving this letter? Well, normally in Paul's letters, it would be to the church in Corinth, to the church in Rome, to the church in Ephesus. Here, Jude doesn't give us a church and their location. Now, this could be like Peter and John who wrote one letter to multiple churches, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Jude is very specific in the problems at this church and in the solutions for this church. I believe Jude is writing to a church that goes unnamed so that we all can feel the weight of this. We can't say, well, this was just to the church in Galatia or this was just to the church in Philippi we realize that Jude was writing for the church of Hatch, New Mexico as well. But he tells the recipients there are three things. The first one is they are called. Now, the Christian culture likes to talk about being called in terms of ministry or marriage or vocation, right? Like how many guys are being broken up with at, at, or will be broken up with this year by a lady who says, I just don't feel called to be in this relationship, Right? I mean, if we're, if we're being honest, that, that happens quite often. Um, but anyways, that's oftentimes how we talk about the word called. But in the New Testament, the word called is almost always connected with either being called to salvation, right? Being called into, being, into belonging to Christ or being called to holiness, Friends, the idea of being called in the New Testament is less about what you do and more about who you are. So the recipient is called. The recipient is also beloved in God the Father. 
Friends, our calling to salvation and our calling to holiness is closely connected to how much our Heavenly Father loves us. It is that love of the Father that sent the Son to die in our place and come back to life. It is the love of the Father that sends the Holy Spirit to his children. It is the love of God the Father that adopts enemies and makes them his sons and daughters. The third thing we know about the recipients is that they are kept for Jesus. One of my heroes, Charles Spurgeon, uh, an English pastor in the 19th century, he talks about this idea of being kept for Jesus as, as almost being like a jewel that only the husband can wear. He says, we are a a jewel that is kept for Jesus and only he can wear it. This idea of being kept for Jesus carries with it the, the truths of scripture that we are kept for salvation, that those that are saved persevere to the end. And then we see in verse two, a short greeting. And this greeting is actually, it's a prayer, right? Because Jude says, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Oftentimes, Paul says in his greeting, May grace and peace be upon you. But here's what Jude says the first thing he prays for is he prays for mercy, not getting what you deserve. Remember, grace is getting what you don't deserve, grace is a gift you don't deserve, mercy is God holding back what you do deserve. And of course, I would argue that grace is a result of mercy, right? Because we deserve nothing but death and hell. And yet God gives us grace. He gives us his son. He gives us faith in his son. He gives us the church. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the scriptures. And of course, we realize that mercy brings pardon Mercy brings a standing with God through Christ. And this brings to us peace, which is the next thing that Jude prays for. He prays for peace. He prays for that Hebrew word shalom. That we would have a right standing with God and a right standing with men. That, that, that we would be blessed with well-being. That our lives would go well. That is the idea of shalom. But not only does he want mercy and peace to be in our lives, he also wants love to be in our lives. He wants us to know that we are loved by God, loved by him, loved by the church, and he expects that love to be reciprocated. To use a phrase we we use often around here, instead of grace, we'll use love. Love getters are love givers, right? And of course, he, he wants these three things, mercy, peace, and love, to be multiplied. An old Puritan commentator notes that mercy, peace, and love aren't just for the individual Christian. They are to fill the souls and societies around them. May we pray that mercy, peace, and love aren't just for us and this church, but that it would, it, would, it would fill the souls and the societies 
that are around us. The first thing we note, if you're taking notes, is that who you are defines what you do. Who you are defines what you do. Before Jude jumps into any type of teaching for this church, he wants us to know who we are. He wants us to know that we are called, that we are loved by God, and that we are kept for Jesus. He wants us to know that he is praying that mercy, peace, and love would be in our lives and evident out of our lives. He wants us to know that who we are defines what we do. Do you know the name Chuck Colson? Chuck Colson was a lawyer for Richard Nixon, and he was the one who came up with the infamous Nixon's list, right? All the enemies of Nixon that had to be dealt with. He was assumed to have been involved in Watergate, though it was never proven. But Chuck Colson received one of the harshest prison sentences when Nixon left office in a cloud of shame. As Chuck Colson was in prison, he became a Christian. And as he was leaving prison, many of his enemies were detractors saying, of course he met Jesus. Everyone meets Jesus in prison. Chuck Colson had this quote, There is something pompous and self-righteous even saying that I have been converted. But here's what I do know. I do know that in my heart I have accepted certain truths. And the amazing thing about Chuck Colson and his sketchy past is that he spends the rest of his life telling people about Jesus and working towards prison reform. He begins this this ministry organization called Prison Fellowship, which seeks to get chaplains who believe the Bible into every prison across the United States and around the world. He dedicates himself to telling people about Jesus and defending the faith of Christianity. This man with degrees from schools that I couldn't even get into who had committed himself to seeing the downfall of his political enemies, comes to meet Jesus and works for truly what we would consider would be one of the least desirable people to work with. You tell me, did Jesus change him? Absolutely he did. And this is, this is proof that who you are defines what you do. When he was a sinner, he dove into sin. When he was saved... He dove into serving others and loving the Lord. Friends, this is a reminder to us of what we just read, that Jesus is our mercy, peace, and love. It is because of the cross of Jesus that we have mercy, that God's judgment is not over us anymore. It is because of Jesus that we have peace with God. It is because of his blood on the cross that we are washed clean and we can have intimate fellowship with our heavenly father. And it is because of Jesus that we know what love is. It is because of Jesus that we can love. And so for those of you that are sitting on the fence, for those of you that would not consider yourselves Christians, or maybe you do consider yourself a Christian, but you're not sure if you really are, I want to speak directly to you for one second. I know you want to be good. All of us want to be good. But can you be good enough? We all fail whatever precedent we set for ourselves. And I want you to know that there is mercy for law breakers. 
It's found in Jesus. Believer, as you come to this realization that who you are defines what you do, know that it starts with your faith in Jesus. It starts with your trust in him. It starts with you saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to listen to you. I trust that you died on the cross and came back to life for me. And out of that trust, I am, I am giving you everything about me. And this is why we must talk of Jesus more than morality. Now, we need to call sin, sin. And we need to be upfront about fighting sin and not being okay with sin. But the point of Christianity is not to make people more moral. Let's not forget that in Nazi Germany, alcohol and pornography were made illegal. The point is not morality. The point is heart change by Jesus. Church, let's let our doctrine, our teaching, our beliefs be the thing that leads to character building. Let's make sure that we keep the main thing, the main thing. And in the public square, let us be known more for being about Jesus than being a good person. Right? We don't want people to think we're jerks. We want people to think we're good people. But let the first thing they say is, he's really passionate about Jesus. All she talks about is Jesus. Let that be the first thing they say. And then let them say, he's good to do business with. She's trustworthy. So we move to verse 3. Jude jumps into to the, the, the meat of his letter. And it is a short letter, but a meaty letter. He says in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So he begins this section by calling them beloved, reminding them of verse 1, that they are loved by the Father, pointing to verses 17 and 20, where they will be called beloved. Friends, you are loved by God and your church. Do not forget that. He tells them that he was very eager to write to them. This is a good reminder of what we just left with Hosea and with Haggai. Remember, when Haggai spoke, it was the Lord's words through his voice. As Jude writes this letter, these are God's words with his writing voice, his personality. But there's also a desire within him to write this letter. This isn't like he all of a sudden is overtaken by the Holy Spirit and becomes some unfeeling robot. He loves the people he's writing to and he wants them to know the truths that he's presenting to them. And he writes to them about our common salvation. Friends, this salvation is a present reality and an end-time gift. If you trust in Jesus then you are made clean now and you will persevere to the end and be saved when Jesus returns. Jude calls it common because all who trust in Jesus alone, his life, his death, and his resurrection are saved from their sin and their just punishment of hell. 
So this means that you can be a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Pentecostal and still hold to this common salvation. We may disagree on some of the finer points, but we all hold to save by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, known by the scriptures alone, for God's glory alone. He tells us to contend for the faith. Now, this could be a contention with the idea of, of, of a military fight like we see in Ephesians 6 where ta- Paul talks about how we don't battle with flesh and blood but with spiritual realities. This could be athletic like we just read in Hebrews 12 where we are told to push through and keep running the race. In many Greek contexts, this word contend actually has it the idea of a legal debate. But whatever it's talking about, it's telling us to struggle with intense effort. To not make this a pastime, but to put our hearts and minds into all of this. And I know some of you are thinking, well, preacher, that's what we pay you to do. Friends, I am not the theological center of this church. I have, hopefully I have influence, right, through my preaching and my teaching and our times of discipleship. But we together form the theological foundation of this church. What you believe about Jesus is just as important as what I believe. And if you believe things that are contrary to the gospel, it is going to erode the foundation of this church away. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this call to contend for the faith is not just for me. I'm not just preaching this sermon to myself. I need you, as as my Chinese pastor friend would call us, to be co-laborers. We must work together to contend for the faith. We need to note that this contention for the faith is not something we do with outsiders. You're going to see clearly as we work through this letter that false teachers had risen up in the church and Jude is saying contend for the faith with those that are inside the church. But we also must note that he wants us to be earnest. He wants us to be serious. He wants us to see the weight of this, to, to feel the call to be right in what we believe but he doesn't want us to be furious. He doesn't want us to be angry. He doesn't want us to turn disputes about doctrine into fistfights. Do you understand this? Our enemy is not a Christian who believes something wrong. Our enemy is not an unbeliever. The new atheists that love writing books about how ridiculous Christianity is, they are not your enemy. They are a broken sinner like you. They just haven't found the gospel yet. Your enemy is Satan. Your enemy is sin. And those two things, Satan and his demons and our sin, combine together to twist the truth of God's word. Don't forget what happened in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say you couldn't eat from this tree? 
Now, maybe he did really say that, but is that really what's best for you? I mean, Eve, you got to think about you. That's what Satan does. That's what sin does. If there is a theological disagreement that comes up in this church in the next year, it is not the good guys versus the bad guys. It's not the white hats and the black hats. Friends, we are all broken by sin. We need the truth of the scriptures to lead us to our Lord and Savior. And that's what Jude is telling us to do here. And not only must we contend with the false teaching, but we must contend with our own hearts. We must realize that our hearts can lean towards false teaching and lean towards brokenness because they're still being put back together. So he says, contend for the faith. This faith that is once for all delivered to the saints It is a faith that is not necessarily talking about trust, which is what normally faith means, but really it's about the traditional teaching that has been passed down from the apostles through the church to today. It is the message of the gospel. This faith is delivered. It does not evolve. It is to be abided in, not to be altered when the early church decided who they were going to listen to and whose letters they were going to read, they made the decision based upon, is Jesus preached as crucified and resurrected by these people? Because if Jesus isn't crucified and he's not resurrected, then they are not of the faith and we are not going to listen to them. Friends, as you read books and as you listen to internet and television preachers, Is the message Christ crucified and resurrected for sinners or is it something else? And brothers and sisters, if it's something else, we should lay it aside. Listen and read the people that focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus for sinners. The word delivered is used here, and it brings to mind 2 Thessalonians 2.15, where Paul tells the church in Thessalonica to stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us. The gospel truth must be passed down, and it must be protected from generation to generation and by generation to generation. And don't forget who these saints are that Jude is talking about. He is not talking about the people that get their names put on churches. To be a saint means to be one who is holy and set apart. And Christ makes every believer holy and set apart. So whenever the New Testament talks to the saints, it's not talking to the super spiritual. It's talking to all of those who have confessed that Jesus has died and come back to life for them and he is now their Lord. Jude's talking to us, saints. And so the second point is that our faith is to be passed on and protected from generation to generation. Our faith is to be passed on and protected from generation to generation. I don't mean to quote Spurgeon too much today, but I'm going to, to use his illustration for this passage because it's, it's great. He talks about how there was a time in England when there was this great fear that Napoleon was going to invade. If you don't remember Napoleon, he was the French, I don't even know what you would call him, 
But he, he thought he was the new Julius Caesar, right? And he thought France was the new Rome. And so he pretty much took almost all of Europe over by himself and his army. And England was concerned that Napoleon was going to try to get into some boats and come across the English Channel and take them over too. And so because of this fear, men, young and old, joined rifle clubs to prepare themselves for the battle that was coming. Spurgeon says the church must be like this. Not to join rifle clubs and and sit in our homes scared about Satan with guns in our hands because your gun is not going to stop Satan. Your gun is not going to stop bad teaching in the church. Instead, we must commit ourselves to the scriptures, to know them well, to hear them preach, to teach them to each other, knowing that Satan wants to slip unbelievers into this church, slip them into leadership so that they can teach false things and lead people away from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for sinners like us. So to help us with this, we must realize that Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners has always been the faith passed down. That's why Paul talks about the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, this is what was given to you and what you hold fast in, that Jesus died and came back to life, spoken of by the scriptures for people like us. For those of you sitting on the fence, you may think that we are a myth-following people, but we trust that the resurrection is historical fact. We believe that the biblical evidence on top of the non-biblical evidence on top of the fact that Jesus said it would happen and that it seemed like it did, we trust not in fairy tales, but in a man who we believe used to be dead and is not anymore. Christian, we must realize that the gospel is everything. It has to be the center of all that we do. And we, each one of us, young and old, male and female, mature and immature, all of us must be a part of passing down the gospel and protecting it. So church, let's be all about the gospel. And when we're in the public square, don't worry about getting into theological controversy conversations. You don't have to convince your unbelieving friend of Noah and the veracity of it. You don't have to convince your unbelieving friend that the earth was created in six literal days. If they come to know and believe the gospel, God will change their hearts and minds. The key is the gospel. So we go to verse 4. Jude finishes the intro to this letter with this thought. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and, to deny, our, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These certain people who have crept in unnoticed. It doesn't mean that they put on an invisibility cloak, right? It means that they came in and hid their true character and they hid their true motives. Most 
Biblical commentators think that they were likely traveling preachers. This was common in the New Testament era, right? Paul was a traveling preacher. Peter, at times, was a traveling preacher. But Jude gives us four truths about these imposters that we need to take to heart. The first one is that long ago, they were designated for this condemnation. Proverbs 16.4 tells us that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. We could also translate that word trouble into the English word judgment. Now we're going to see more of this in the following weeks as, as Jude deals with the false teachers in the church. But we must know that there are two options for false teachers. They either repent or their damnation is sure. Friends, that's hard to hear, right? That someone is given by God to eternal judgment. But we need to know that we can persevere in the faith once delivered to the saints because our enemies will not prevail. And brothers and sisters, know this fact. False teachers are your enemy. They want to take your eyes off Jesus and put it onto something else. You must keep your eyes on Jesus. So not only are they designated for condemnation, but they are also ungodly people. They live like God does not exist. They may believe that God exists, but their lives don't show it. They are functional atheists. They may sing or even preach about God, but their hearts ignore him. Jude is talking about their moral lives, not their theology. But friends, don't get it twisted. Bad theology will lead to bad morality, right? If we do not teach the right things about God, our lives will go towards sin. The third thing we notice about them is that they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. It, it goes like this. They begin to make light of sin. Then they call spiritual discipline legalism. Then they begin to mock self-examination. And then they come to this message of, hey, do what you want because you're under grace. Friends, the grace of God saves you from everything. But if you go out and preach grace and then live an unrepentant life, you are not under grace. A life under grace wants to change, wants to be different, wants to look more like Jesus. And anyone who says you're under grace, so do whatever your heart desires, even if it's sin, that is a, that is a lie from the pits of hell. That is Satan wanting to distract unbelievers from the gospel by making them think they're protected by the gospel to live completely unrepentant lives. The final way we notice these people is that they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They say he's a great prophet. They say he's a great teacher. They say that he was a moral man of God, and so he was blessed. I don't know how the cross is a blessing, but they, that's what they say. They don't say that he is the eternal God who took on flesh to buy back his bride by dying on the cross. And he's coming back to save her completely from sin, death, and hell. And he did all this driven by love. And he is now ruling over her with grace, with mercy, with love. But he's ruling. He's a king. 
He calls us to obey him. Brothers and sisters, you were bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. You must obey him. So our final point is this. Don't let go of the gospel. Don't let go of the gospel. Do you remember that scene in Toy Story 2 at the end? If you haven't seen Toy Story 2, just a real quick synopsis. There's a kid named Andy. He owns these toys. They come alive when he's not around. Um, And the toys end up at an airport. And these two toys specifically, Woody and Jesse, they're on a plane to Japan. And they have to get off so they can get back to Andy. And Woody and Jesse, it's a cowboy and cowgirl doll. Um, They both have drawstrings that you can pull and they'll talk. And as they're trying to escape this plane, two other toys, Buzz Lightyear and, um, I forgot, is that Bullseye? They're they're under, the Bullseye is, is is a horse. They're under the plane, ready to catch them. And Woody takes his drawstring and hooks it around just a little nut on the plane, uh, or a little nut and bolt so, so that they can escape. And, and Jessie's just not sure. She doesn't know if they can make it. And, and uh, Woody says to her, do you, remember, do you remember in the show when Woody and Jessie are jumping over the cliff? Let's let go of the plane and we'll, we'll make it. And she says, but we don't know how it ends because the show was canceled after that episode. And, and Woody says, Let's find out. She lets go. They end up on the horse. They're saved. They go back to Andy. It's a great, it's a great movie, great story. Um, life is crazy. And false teachers in the church can make it crazier. And what Jesus is telling you to do is to hold on to him. Find out if these promises are true. Put your trust in him and not in the false teachers. Friends, your hope is in the cross because that's where forgiveness is. And your hope is in the resurrection because that's where life is. Those of you that are unbelievers, you can think that you can be good without God, but in all reality, no standard is low enough for you to live up to. There's only been one perfect human and his name was Jesus. Christian, you need to resolve to persevere in the gospel. You need to write it down today and every morning remind yourself that you are going to persevere in the gospel. And we also must, we must serve as cheerleaders for one another. We must hold each other up in prayer and encourage each other to keep going, to keep following him. Church, we need to keep extending the gospel message to unbeliever and believer alike. Believers need to be built up by it, and unbelievers need to come to faith through it. And friends, in the public square, we're going to finish with this. Gospel getters are gospel givers. If you've received the gospel and it's changed your life, you're going to talk about it. Just like when you go to the new restaurant and you want to tell everybody on Facebook about it. The gospel is much more important. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I, I know 
I know we took some time getting through this passage, but God, I, it's so rich and so full, and, and we, we needed it today. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our lives to be changed by it. Father, for those of us that are unbelievers, bring us to repentance and faith this morning. Father, for those of us that are believers, help us to stand on the truth of the gospel. Help us to contend for it. Help us to pass it down. Help us to take seriously the need for this church to be all about Jesus. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for what he did on the cross and the resurrection. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that he equips and trains believers to do what you've called us to do. And Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. And we, we want to worship you now. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.